0: So someone asked me, "What is the, if you're a music guy, what's the hardest part about, about preaching on a Sunday? And um, thinking I was going to say, well, the additional study. That, honestly, the hardest part is standing still. That's the hardest. Uh, you know, I, I love to use all of the space up here during during worship that I'm permitted to. And so nailing my, as Pastor John says, nail your feet to the ground when you talk up there. And so... I'm going to try and do that, but I have this tendency to sway with a rhythm that only I can hear. So, So, um, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 118. Today's message is going to be saturated with Scripture. Uh, No sermon points. Scripture, Scripture, and Scripture. We are going to be praying for our tech team as they try and keep up. I think I have 82 slides this morning. So... I'm going to hit them fast. You'll get to lunch, I promise. (laughs) So this time of year is crazy for many people, right? I spoke to three people this morning. How are things? Oh, it's just crazy right now. There's um, Kids are home for the summer, but there are these camps and activities and all with that looming school year, which seems to creep closer and closer to July every year. And... Oftentimes, we feel overwhelmed when I speak to you, when you come to me and ask me to pray with you. It's this season, it's about being overwhelmed. And we lean on God for strength and for direction, and those are good things. But if you are anything like me, we can make a critical mistake here. We can fall into a habit of looking to God's word solely for our inspiration. We want that pick-me-up, right? We want to feel better. But God, you see, has given us his inerrant and perfect word. So in reading his word, we grow in our faith and we bring glory and honor to him. And that's what God intends. God intends for his creation to honor him. So this must be our approach when we come before the Lord in studying the pages of Scripture. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But sometimes, rather than living the chief end of man is to glorify God, we tend to fall into the mindset that the chief end of God is to encourage me. God desires to see Himself glorified. Our primary motive should be one of bringing glory to Him, not simply making ourselves feel better. Our focus is to be one of humble reverence before a holy God. But God is gracious to us, though. He has wired within our being joy and contentment when we seek Him. When we seek to glorify God with our lives, the things of this world will grow strangely dim, to quote Miss Helen Lamell. A few months back, we spoke of the often misused verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We saw that this wasn't a verse about us achieving our dreams, but rather a celebration of God's faithful and glorious provision for his own. And so within today's lengthy psalm, we find yet another verse like that. And we see that when we do not look to Christ within the pages of Scripture, we rob ourselves of the beauty and comfort of God's word. So today's passage comes alive with a Christ-centered reading. So with a desire to read about Jesus this morning, we are going to read the entirety of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge with the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but has not given me over to death. Open the gates of the righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we cry, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That psalm should strike the heart of every believer when they hear it. Martin Luther wrote of his fondness for this psalm saying, This is the psalm that I love. For it has often served me well and has helped me out of grave troubles when neither emperor, kings, wise men, clever men, nor saints could have helped me. So we sometimes, there's... Roughly 150 psalms. Your Bible may have 150, may have a couple more depending on how it's broken down. But we kind of place them into groups so that we can study. And some of that is um, uh, Jewish tradition. And some of it is our own pragmatic approach to kind of um, understanding our psalms. Um, Psalm 118 is the last of what are known as the Hallel Psalms. Or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118 make those up. So 118 is today's text. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is the only psalm quoted by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Quite possibly it was written by Moses to look back in worship at the historical Passover. And also to look ahead to the Passover to come and the perfect Passover lamb that was slain. Here the blood of Jesus would serve as a saving sacrifice as Jesus substitutionally atoned once and for all for the sins of the redeemed. 118 had a very important role during the Feast of Tabernacles and the, feast of, and the Passover feast. See, rabbis in ages before Jesus had customarily sang the Hallel Psalms during key celebrations. And due to the fact that Christ and his followers were Jewish, we can assume that these psalms were sung following the Passover meal that we refer to as the Last Supper. Matthew 26 reads, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Mark 14 says the exact same thing. And since Psalm 18 is the last of the Hillel Psalms, we can be confident and assuming that Jesus sang this very hymn following the Last Supper. Moments before Jesus went to Gethsemane and prayed in agony, knowing that soon he would stand before a holy God with the sins of the saved heaped upon him, Christ sings this hymn, knowing he will face God's wrath. And being God incarnate, he would have known well that wrath. It begins, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, God's chosen people. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, these would have been the priesthood. Again, that's not us. And then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 4, the author includes us. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever verse five out of my distress I called on the Lord the Lord answered me and set me free the Lord is on my side I will not fear what can man do to me and as I kind of thought and meditated on um, this particular two verse um, portion of the passage it really made me think of what happened to the disciples after they saw Jesus resurrected So if you think about it, things were probably pretty eerie after the crucifixion, right? They were fighting fear and uncertainty. They had seen their master killed. Then they saw him resurrected. They would have understood with great clarity how powerful their savior was. They saw the skin ripped from his body. They saw the nails go into his hands. They watched him die tortured, spat upon, and mocked. A few days later, he was breaking bread with them. What assurance they would have had knowing that Jesus was their God. He's their Savior, and nothing devised by man can change a believer's eternity. Humans may hurt the body, but Christ only could provide eternal salvation." The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Jesus himself promised a helper for us in the Holy Spirit. When he speaks to his disciples before his ascension, John 14, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So as we continue, it's better to take refuge than to trust in princes. Um, Princes are the, the powerful within a society. A contemporary equivalent may be something like celebrities or politicians or world leaders And we as flawed, fleshly beings often seek to find peace and joy and even justice in the actions of men and women. We saw this in our recent political seasons, right? Remember back to 2016 as we sought to elect a new president, we saw people with all of their hopes for the future of humanity tied up in one of two people. And then in 2016, we saw panicked, unhappy masses Convinced that this election spelled certain doom. And then in 2020, we saw two candidates, both viewed as saviors of sorts by some of their supporters. Following the election, we saw yet another group of despondent people that were convinced because their prince had lost. Proclaiming certain doom. But both of these men and one woman are sinners just like us. And worthy of hell. That's why we as believers seek refuge in the Lord. Not our elected leaders. We see this type of thing today with some. Insisting that governmental policy are the answers to justice and fairness. We feel that peace will come through the right laws or the right statutes. That says nothing about heart change to trust in a government. If you ever listen to the Just Thinking podcast, I can't re- recommend it anymore. But Virgil Walker says many Christians today are replacing G.O.D. with G.O.V. And it's, it's, it's an important thing to think about. Victorin Striegel writes, The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, Because by the word of the gospel, the eternal church is gathered to God. And the light and true understanding of God along with the righteousness and eternal life are kindled in the hearts of the pious. These true and eternal blessings forever surpass the fleeting shadows of political justice and peace. To verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I love, 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 verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. It's important to notice what the text says. It is very important to observe what the text does not say. We do not read, the Lord is part of my strength. We also do not read, the Lord adds to my strength. We do not read, the Lord supplements my strength. We read, the Lord is my strength. Cultural Christianity, quotation marks wrongly teaches a Jesus that shows up when you have done some of the work, but you just need that little boost. When when you have exhausted all of your efforts, it's time to invite God to show up and pitch in a little bit. We see this in in non-biblical sayings, like, God helps those who help themselves. These words are found nowhere in the Bible, yet I've, I've heard them taught in Sunday school before. Unfortunately, Jesus is often falsely viewed as a divine assistant rather than an all-powerful savior. You remember the book, The Lord is My Co-Pilot? You've got to be born in the 70s to remember that. The book, The Lord is My Co-Pilot? Is that not an arrogant title? If you think the Lord is your co-pilot, he will make it known to you that you are in the wrong seat. Either. Either God leads your life or He doesn't. And if you're in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, you will find that He has a way of removing any illusion we may have of our own strength so that we may rely totally upon Him. And to our surprise, this is actually a great and liberating blessing. Martin Luther writes... He doesn't want you to multiply your troubles by burdening and torturing yourself. He wants you to be too weak to bear and overcome such troubles. He wants you to grow strong in him. By his strength, he is glorified in you. So we must ask ourselves that question, right? Is God glorified in me? Does God guide our steps or do we live a life of rebellion and self-centeredness, only to turn only to turn to God when things get bad. Is God our everything or is he our last resort? The text says, My strength and my song. This is, by the way, a, a recapitulation of Exodus fifteen, two. Songs are what fill us as they motivate us, they stir us. Certain songs consume us, making us joyful or grateful or aggressive. Songs can dictate our mood or our outlook. And the right song at the right time can change the trajectory of your entire day. And we all have favorites that we are passionate about. And when you hear your favorite song playing, you shout, this is my song or that's my jam. Am I too old to say that's my jam? Somebody over there in the young section. No. okay, that's my jam. (laughs) How often do you get a song stuck in your head and you cannot stop singing it to the dismay of your friends and family? They say, please stop singing that song. You're driving me crazy. And your response is, I can't. This is my song. (laughs) On a personal note, at the Moncrief home, this has become a major problem. I've been told. <laughs> I've been informed by my wife that if she hears me sing one more 80s glam metal ballad, something very bad may happen to me. But Where am I? Here we go. So back to the text. The Lord is our song. Is he what fills us, what satisfies us, what brings us joy? Does the greatness of Jesus Christ stay stuck in our head all day as we go about our lives? Or is it the foul, godless tune of this world that lives in our mind? Does our love for and worship of God consume our thoughts and guide our actions? Do we confess our weakness while celebrating the faithful provision of our God who promises to lead through all trials and hardships? Is God truly our strength and our song? Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteousness. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. We spoke about this in our, the home group that meets at my house a while back. Uh, God's right hand is a place of highest position, signifying sovereignty and honor. R.C. Sproul puts it better than... I do, so I will read you what he said. God's right hand is the place of highest favor with God the Father. And the phrase is used throughout Scripture to indicate his power and sovereignty. We see this in Exodus 15. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. We see it in Isaiah 43. Clear reference to Jesus here. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So, back to our psalm today I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Within God's discipline, And if you want to know if you've been under God's discipline, if you're saved, the answer is yes. Do you ever just, within God's discipline, have a nice pity party for yourself? I can't believe God has singled me out for such trial and hardship. On our worship team, this is a running joke. We lightheartedly keep each other in check here. Things like, I love the Lord, so why am I having to go through this? I'm a believer. I go to church. I tithe. Why God? Why? And scripture tells us that we endure hardships and discipline because we are God's children. The father grows and shapes his own. Years ago, when I was a very small child, maybe six or seven years old, I was at a grocery store called the Piggly Wiggly with my mother. And at the Piggly Wiggly, they had these like um, ceramic floors. And if you caught them at the right time, you could take your shoes off and run and slide down an entire aisle. And there was these kids doing that there. There was so much fun happening in front of me. And I wanted to, to join in. And my mother told me, no, absolutely not. But I was, I was not deterred. I waited for her to turn around and I prepared for my run. I had my shoes off. I was thinking about going for the world record. And then she saw me. And I don't want to get into what happened, but she disciplined me severely. (laughs) And I asked my mother, why can those children run and slide on the floor free from your correction? And she said to me, because those children are not mine. So we do well to remember that God's discipline in our lives is but proof that we belong to him. Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. One should not fear God's discipline in his or her life. One should fear life outside of God's discipline. If you are in Christ, He is changing you, correcting you, shaping you to be more like Him for your happiness. No, for His glory, which will make you joyful. It's not always fun, but it is always for the glory of God. Calvin wrote, God always deals mercifully with his own people so that his correction proves their cure. Moving on, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This verse we will see is quoted most often when Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem, being openly proclaimed as the Messiah. This public adoration and his acceptance of it would lead directly to his execution. In in verse 19 of Psalm 118 we're clearly reading that very thing. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them. So what is this gate? Well, rather than using the efforts of man to ascertain what the gate is, we will let Scripture entertain, uh, interpret <laughs> Scripture. Man's reason is flawed. Scripture pro- proclaims that this gate is Jesus Christ. It's recorded in John 9. I am the gate Whoever enters through me will be saved. Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep, the gate through which they enter. Jesus is the gate of righteousness. So the psalmist says, I thank you that the gate of righteousness is what? My salvation. He continues, verse 22, the the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In ancient times, people built with rocks. Rocks is a Foundation. One stone would be used as a sort of plumb line for the construction. That would be the cornerstone. Everything rested upon the positioning of the cornerstone. Everything was lined up depending on the cornerstone. And scripture tells us that is what Jesus is. But Jesus didn't look like and didn't speak like. The religious leaders of the day. Jesus didn't have the education that they thought he should have. Jesus didn't pick pick the friends and religious leaders they thought he should have. They rejected Jesus because they had a different set of blueprints, if you will, in mind. Based off tradition and the assumption of man... And then enters this man into a zeitgeist reliant upon works. And he is preaching a doctrine of grace and reliance upon God's sovereignty as it pertains to salvation. And we look back at this treatment of Jesus and we scoff. But how often do we still reject things and people that do not look like what we think they should? I am often amused by the people God calls into service. God once called a terrorist named Saul and charged him with writing a large portion of our New Testament. Sometimes we like like to act like someone's prior sins, the mistakes of their former life, or even their very appearance makes them unworthy of serving in ministry. All along, God the Father takes delight In calling those from the fringes of society. He calls those that we look down upon. And those that we gossip about. And he uses them to glorify himself. While he simultaneously convicts our self-righteous flesh. The religious leaders of Israel. They rejected Jesus. Because they were not looking to God's word. In search of their Messiah. But because they were seeking to buttress their own application of the law. Rather than seeing the law as something that pointed to their Messiah, they saw the law as a man, woman, works, power, device by which someone could somehow earn God's favor. And because of this misinterpretation, they had a corrupt design for God's church. So they rejected Jesus Christ, the very cornerstone Upon which the church rested. Jesus' closest followers would refer to this passage. Throughout the inspired writings. We're going to go through every instance I could find. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected. Has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Mark 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected. Has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eye. Luke 20. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. First Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I love the part where, while we're celebrating the greatness that Jesus is, God always seems to remind us, this has nothing to do with your effort, right? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We all need that reminder. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I think when you become a grandmother, you have to hang this verse in your house. Or they don't let you become a grandmother. But this is, this is one of those verses that out of context is deflated. It's not all that it is meant to be. If we look at this verse without any attention to Christ's saving work, we can say, yeah, the Lord gave us this day. Let's rejoice and be happy, and there's there's really nothing wrong with that. All of that's true. But when we read this passage within its intended context, we realize that the Lord's doing, the, the incarnation, Jesus, God in flesh, He would walk this earth, He would live perfectly. He was rejected and executed. He would stand before the Father with the sins of the saved upon his shoulders, bearing God's wrath to its conclusion. In doing so, he would reconcile God's wrath toward a sinful humanity. Those who believe this good news will not receive the hell they deserve, but instead will spend eternity within God's love and grace. So as Jesus arrives on the foal of a donkey to Jerusalem, the people shout, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Only when we approach the scripture from a Christ-centered perspective do we begin to understand the depth and beauty of God's word. This was the teaching of Jesus Christ. As well as his disciples. So the people are using very, very specific language here. On that day, the people were hailing Jesus as the Messiah. And the religious leaders, they, they told him, they said, uh, "Jesus, get control of your people." And Jesus is one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. Jesus replies to them, "If the people cease to proclaim me, then you know inanimate word? inanimate objects will just rise up and praise me on their own." Luke 19, and yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, I, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. In other words, nothing can restrict the proclamation of the gospel. Verses 25 and 26, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The people here, they were they were shouting, save us, save now, save now. And that Hebrew literally translates to the word Hosanna. And here it comes in in verse 26, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, the people worshipping Jesus as he entered to Jerusalem were quoting this very scripture hosanna blessed is he that comes in the name of the lord and Jesus did not rebuke them he accepted this clear messianic praise these words echo throughout new testament scripture matthew 21 and the crowds That went before them and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 23 for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark 11 and those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke 13. Behold. Your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As he was, Luke 19, as he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, blessed is. Is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And finally John 12. So they took branches of palm trees. And went out to meet him crying out Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. As we finish with the last few verses. Verse 27, the Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Let's look at verse 27. You know that we read nowhere else of a sacrifice being bound with anything and placed on an altar. That that doesn't seem to be a practice of the sacrificial system in which an animal's body was laid on an altar and burnt. So what is it that is to be bound with cords? This seems to point very clearly to the binding of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. History tells us that crucifixion victims were bound with cords, probably in order to keep the nails from tearing through their flesh. As our worship team comes forward, church, I want us to reflect on this. Just hours before his execution and his substitutionary judgment, Christ singing with anticipation of the coming sacrifice of himself. Knowing the the pain and the judgment to come, he sang a hymn of celebration, the final words of which are the same as the very first verse. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, the power of this passage, scripture that points to Jesus Christ, the perfect Passover lamb, the once and for all atonement for our sins. Father, forgive us when we fall short. Forgive us when we fail to see the depths of your love for us. God, we we can become so obsessed with our worldly lives that we attempt to ignore the peace and the provision that you offer. Thank you for sending yourself and for paying our sin debt. God, I pray this morning for the one who is in this room that does not yet know you. Through the Holy Spirit, you are always faithful to save your own, and we pray that you will bring the unbelieving to yourself today.